Hey everyone, this is Genre Equality 2. Uh, this is just our second ever episode, but if you didn't listen to our first episode, let me provide some context as to what we discussed. Sure. We talk about the geeky side of pop culture, everything from sci-fi and superheroes to uh, fantasy and horror. Mm-hmm. But it's not just television and movies. We'll be talking about books, comic books, manga, or whatever, you know, uh, catches our interest. Yep. That uh, sounds about right. Yeah. I will be joined by my two co-hosts. Uh, the first one you've already heard, Radon Hadi. Hadi. That's me. Oh. <laughs> yes. Will you introduce yourself? Star Wars fan and Star Trek fan. Star Trek fan. Yeah. Well, I mean, if that you were, my specialties, I guess. If if you went, you know what? Then what, I don't what, know what do I have? You, yeah. <laughs> why why did I even invite you on? We're not talking about wrestling today, bro. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, our our other co-host is a, a more level-headed fellow by the name of Isa Fong. Hi, Isa Closet Otaku. Yeah. Or we are going, depending on how you want to look at it. Yeah, uh, he's also a musician with bands like Subshaman and a solo project, Blank Verse. You know, got to plug that in. Plug Why in. Not? Sure, thanks guys. <laughs> <laughs> For our dozens of listeners. Our dozens. Uh, and my name is Itzir Junaini. Uh, you may know me as a journalist, uh, music journalist particularly, mm-hmm. formerly of Juice and Bandwagon, currently I write for Potwire, something that I enjoy more than music because uh, I write about film and TV which uh, kind of coincides with what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's only been one month into uh, the year, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and already we have so much to talk about. We're yeah. a bit um, spot rotten with our netdom. Yeah. Yeah. You know like how uh, back in the day, like when we were younger in secondary school, yeah. it, was, it used to be so tough to find your tribe when you talk about stuff like this. Definitely. Uh, but now it's become the mainstream thing. Yeah, I mean, it used to be so niche. You had to hang out at comic book stores. Yeah. You know, to find other people who read like the the latest the latest season of Flash the latest sorry the latest issue of Flash the latest <laughs> <laughs> latest issue of Flash that's true that's that true kind of yeah, yeah. Uh, it's stuff like anime manga yeah. reading books like American Gods and stuff yep. like that yeah. it's great it's so much more commonplace now and it's kind of like a topic of conversation in almost any group that you go to yeah uh, I mean, specifically with the Marvel Cinematic Universe being as popular as it is, Indeed. it is the new action blockbuster, la, shall mm. we say. Yep. Yeah. Uh, this month, we'll be talking about a bunch of topics, including a lot of adaptations. Yes. We'll have two anthology series, not one, but two. Two, yeah. Black Mirror plus one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the age of the anthology is back. We'll be talking about uh, adaptations for shows like Runaways. Uh, the Gifted, which is an X-Men series, including other more miscellaneous genre films, such as Downsizing. Downsizing. Uh, we'll be talking about the Nancy Boys, which is an adaptation of a, a book, new uh, game and novel. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a radio play. It's a radio See? play. Yeah. We're diverse. We're diverse. diverse. And a spin-off from American Gods. Spin-off from American Gods. Uh, I'll be talking about an Indonesian horror film called Pengabdi Satan, aka Satan Slaves. <laughs> which neither of you have seen, but it's actually really good. I know, okay. Yeah. Uh, but first of, all, first of all, let's uh, kick off with, I guess, the major topic of the month, yep. which is Black Mirror. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Black Mirror is a British sci-fi anthology series created by Charlie Brooker and Animal Jones. It kind of uh, examines modern society with particular regard to the unanticipated consequences of technology. Uh, episodes are usually standalone and take place in either a present or alternative future. But as we kind of discover in this season of Black Mirror, they might be connected. Uh, this premiered um, slightly before the New Year's. Yeah. Uh, most of us didn't have a chance to watch it until early in January, which is why we're covering it in February right now. Yep. Uh, if you know you have social lives, 
<laughs> you're out during Christmas, you're out during New Year's. Except we actually spent our New Year's we watching Black Mirror. Mirror. <laughs> we did, yeah. Damn, we're sad. That's fine. Yeah. Well, I guess that's why we're doing shows like this. Though. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, season 4 is uh, particularly divisive. Um, some aspects of it, I feel, are better mm-hmm. than previous seasons and some aspects of it are worse. Okay. Um, let's, let's kick it off with um, Isa Fung. Like, what are your initial impressions of Black Mirror Season 4? And uh, what makes you think that it's better or worse than previous seasons? Um, okay, before I get into my, my personal impression of it, mm. I think it's very interesting that a lot of other people that I've talked to about season 4 have felt that they're kind of losing their edge, right? Or at least the stories that they're they are putting out right now aren't as shocking as, say, first season. Well, obviously first season, mm. and as well as second, second season. Do you think it's just because of viewers' familiarity with Charlie Brooker's point of view? Uh, it could be. I I personally think it very much has to do with the fact that this sh- the shock and awe tactic that worked so well in the beginning, and mm. because nobody kind of anticipated what uh, it was going to be about, or yeah. to the extent at which they were going to explore these themes, mm. uh, have kind of normalized. Sure, you know, and uh, I think like kudos to Charlie Brooker and the way that he's decided to expand mm. on uh, these themes in a way that gives us a much deeper look. From different angles. From different angles, uh, as opposed to simply relying on the fact that it is a shocking thing, mm. or you know, because now now that the audience expects that, uh, instead of like going like you know like the shonen manga power up arc where you constantly have to one up what you've done before, mm. he's decided to kind of like do a, a horizontal expansion and mm-hmm. give us a deeper look into this kind of world that he's creating, and we'll get more into that in a bit. What about you, Hadi? Well. Um, to continue with your point, either, uh, I thought that this was a good way of actually creating a universe, uh, mm. right? I mean, from a shared, universe. a shared universe. Do you think that is a plus point or a negative? For me, it was a plus point. Okay. I mean, just because I like order, <laughs> you know what I mean? All right. Like it, it makes it uh, uh, easier to compartmentalize everything that we've seen, you know, or, and also to come up with like uh, fan theories and. Yeah, uh, and all these kinds of uh, of of uh, ideas of linking hate canon lah, basically. Don't be such a Marvel fanboy. Not everything yeah. needs to be in the cinema. I universe. know. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, I actually like like You know what well. I mean, right? Yeah. Like right? Well, yeah. Um, but like episodes, I I felt some of the episodes were were kind of um, pushing the boundaries a bit. I mean, episodes like USS Callister and all that. Mm-hmm. I felt was uh, I really, reinvigorated I really the the, yeah. the 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 series mm. instead of uh, I didn't see it as. I didn't see this uh, season 4 as some people said that it was actually less of an achievement mm. uh, than, than previous seasons. Uh. Um, they feel that, I, I personally feel that they feel that it's less of an achievement because they're no longer shocked by it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Black Mirror, as Aisa eloquently yeah. puts it, uh, relied a lot on trial and awe initially, yeah. at least to earn its reputation. Yeah. But if you continually do that, as we kind of see on the news right now, if you know, I mean, to link it to real-world events, like you see terrorist attacks and yeah. mass shootings all the time, it really? stops being shocking if yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah. yeah. What Black Mirror Season 4 chose to do instead was to diversify its structure, yeah. uh, its uh, narrative inclinations, yeah. uh, and two of the standout episodes actually tell me that Black Mirror might work best in 2018 with more optimism yeah. than cynicism. Yeah, because um, Hang the DJ and USS Callister, as we previously mentioned, ended on... Um, better note. Particularly happy endings. Yeah. Uh, Hang the DJ in particular was unabashedly happy. Yeah. Mm. I kind of wonder whether that was an intentional choice given how well received San Junipero was last season. 
Sam Junipero allowed Charlie, uh, let Charlie Brooker know that people are receptive to episodes like this. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so I I think it's still a bold choice, right? After yeah. all, since the trial and true method has always been mm-hmm. shock and awe, mm-hmm. people's jaws on the floor and things like that. An episode like um, Metal Hit is actually very out of the box for Black Mirror. Yeah. Yeah. Two very di- divisive um, reactions. Yeah. What do you think of Metal Hit? Oh, I, I, mean, I wasn't a fan. I like the art direction. It's yeah. cinematography was yeah. so gorgeous. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, uh, I think uh, the minimal storyline that there was told, right, was just a woman trying to escape. Mm. Uh, it was a, it was a chamber horror story, yeah, which yeah. is newer. Yeah, yeah, which I felt was again something different like, from yeah. what we have seen in yeah. this season. Yeah, but apart from that, I I, I felt it lacked something. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure what that something. You, is. you. I think what it lacks is the thematic heft that other episodes have, ah. The philosophical, mo- um, or moral lessons. Perhaps. Yeah. Or yeah, um, it does deal with the um unintended consequence of technology. Yeah. Yeah. But it deals w- with it in a more personal way, la, Okay. That doesn't say more about society. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, for me, I think Metal Hits. I mean, other than the fact that it was gorgeously shot and kind of had like almost this like Mad Max kind yeah. of desolate vibe yeah, yeah. going on. Uh, for me, I think what I found interesting on in retrospect is the fact that it came before Black Museum. Yeah. Right. And uh, after watching Black Museum and putting Black Museum as the last episode was a stroke of genius, in mm-hmm. my opinion, just mm-hmm. like tying everything together. It should have been a series finale, in my opinion. It should have held it off until yeah. the end, end. Mm. But you know. Yeah, yeah but uh, well, I think in that respect, Metal Heads is a setup. Okay. Because if we if we start to consider how everything gets tied together by the time we watch Black Museum, mm-hmm. then it seems like Metalheads would take place after after, after Black Museum, yeah. right? Like fur, much further down in the continuity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if Charlie Brooker is gonna go with like kind of like an overarching storyline and try to tie all these things together. I don't think so. Lah. Yeah, I doubt he will because that's not his thing, right? But it's interesting to think about where Metalheads sits yeah. there and like it being devoid of of. Of um, so much of the human element, yeah. really, like the 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 consequences of the technology that we've created, yeah. uh, and ultimately, you know, they're being hunted by it. But there's barely any life. There's barely anything there. Sure. Uh, and that is very interesting because, like, for for four seasons, all we've been looking about is consequence to humans. Yeah. And this is the one time that we're looking at its consequence on a global scale. Um, not just to humanity, but to ecology, oh, ecology to yeah. the environment, to everything. everything. Yeah. yeah. So I, I I thought it was interesting to bring uh, an idea like that, right? Something that that uh, brings this whole concept of the consequence unintended consequences of technology mm-hmm. to its furthest possible conclusion, mm-hmm. and to bring it so early into what I feel it's probably going to be a very long mm-hmm. and um, continuous franchise yeah right and to punctuate that by also telling people like what you just watched isn't just like a far future thing where you're looking at mm-hmm. but it takes place in a universe mm-hmm. and yes. it is something that I don't know maybe it's an indication of how Black Mirror might go yeah right and maybe we'll see a lot less of um the kind of themes that we've seen so far, yeah. yep. you know, in the future. So that for me was why it stood out, but the only in retrospect after watching the entire season. Yes, uh, it's a more holistic kind of view of uh, Black Mirror. Um, some of the pluses of Black Mirror I felt this season were its emphasis on female protagonists. Yes. Mm. All six episodes featured a female protagonist. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that was a big plus for representation mm. and not all of them are white. So that's great too. Diversity. Diversity. Um, one of the downsides I feel of season four Black Mirror is its repetition or recycling of themes, mm. specifically with uh, 
the attribution of personhood to or sentience yeah. Yeah. to an artificial intelligence yeah. which is honestly nothing new to Black Mirror and nothing new to sci-fi yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting ad- explorations from different angles but I feel like we've cut, he has kind of reached his apex of what he wanted to say with that already and mm-hmm. now we're kind of just running on our heels it is, it's become depression porn when it comes to the sentience thing yeah. Yeah. yeah okay um, do you think that like the recurring or the revisiting of those themes again and again have to do with the fact that right now, at least the generation, uh, the direction that he's going mm. is to kind of establish that the technology that's being used in most of the Black Mirror episodes are mm-hmm. the same technology across the board. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It, because of that, you kind of like write yourself into a corner and you have to like kind of revisit that from different views. Exactly. You know, instead of like every episode has a new and different technology mm-hmm. that doesn't... I mean, I, I still think he can do that because... Um, there are episodes which are way out of whack. Uh. Yeah. I mean, in the previous seasons, you have things like the the, the Waldo moment, the Waldo which one. is very um the pig fucking episode. The pig fucking episode. Uh, <laughs> I forgot the actual title. I think uh, National Anthem. Episode one, National Anthem. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, pick fucking episode pick is fucking a great title too. Title. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> very direct to the point. It gives away the it gives away the the first actors though. So, uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, it, oh, I, I agree with all of those points um, and most of all what I enjoyed most about Black Mirror happened in the first episode mm. it's a very astute and very timely takedown of toxic male masculinity you. in fandom mm. yeah. uh, as, as much as we like to be proud of uh, nerddom taking over popular mm-hmm. culture right? there is a subsection of us that is very hateful yeah. if yep. you've ever been on a message board or YouTube comments uh, people have this uh, barrier of technology and you, they feel like they can do anything to the person on the other side of the computer yep. screen. Yep. Uh, and that, that's what USS character is essentially about. Yeah. I mean, we're both huge Star Trek nets uh, and Star, Star Wars nets. I mean, all three of us are. Mm-hmm. But um, some of the reaction to The Last Jedi, for example, with the representation of The Last Jedi with LGBT uh, people, with persons of colour, yeah. with women, yeah. uh, is quite bad. Mm. It is. Yeah. yeah. Not so much with Star Trek, I feel, because the whole idea of Star Trek is... It's about uh, diversity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll talk more about that at the end of the episode, yeah. But um, in conclusion, Black Mirror Season 4, um, I think it's still a very strong season. It is. Maybe not the best. Uh, no. I mean, it's, it ha- it's been forced to do something different. Mm. And it's forced to play a different role. Actually, I can't really even say... I can't even put my finger on which is my best season. Yeah. Out of four. Yeah. yeah it, it is difficult, but Season 4 makes me very excited to see what they're going to do next. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah we're, we're really looking forward to it. Um, season 4, I think, has a little short story by Penn Gillette in mm-hmm. the Black Museum uh, yeah. about the doctor that becomes addicted or fetishizes pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's one of the few Black Mirror storylines that's not written by Charlie Brooker or Annabelle Jones. The oh. other being uh, Nosedive, which was written by Michael Scher yeah. and Rashida Jones of The Office oh, the and, office uh, and uh, The Good Place fame. Brooklyn nine uh, Yeah, Brooklyn nine yeah. uh, Shows that we can't talk about. Well, we can talk about The Good Place here, but yeah. we can't talk about the other shows here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, so that's it. Um, let's move on to Runaway Season 1. Uh, yeah, something yeah, that only yeah, myself yeah. and Hadi have uh, seen. Uh, let me break down what Runaways <laughs> is. If you have not seen Runaways, it is an adaptation of a Brian K. Bond. And, um, What's the other person saying? Oh boy, I forgot. Uh, Brian Cabon, um, Alfonso, Adriana Alfonso, I oh, think, okay. yeah, is the artist for the initial run of Runaways. Yeah. Runaways has had a lot of good um, uh, writers come on. Yes. Uh, people like Joss Whedon, people like Rainbow Rowell yes. have taken on Runaways. It's basically a story of a group of uh, teenage kids who live... Who uh, literally ran away from their parents. Literally, yeah. Uh, who live very like privileged lives, mm. but they find out that their parents have accumulated that privilege and wealth by being super villains. Yep. 
So this is your usual uh, teen rebellion, but with a good reason. Yes. Against parents who number one don't understand them and are literally evil. Mm-hmm. What did you think of uh, Hulu's adaptation of Runaways? Okay, first off, the casting was near perfect. Near perfect. Yeah. Right from the I mean the main kids were great, mm-hmm. but I think what was impressive was they got the parents also. Mm. Right. The Brian Kevin comic book, as revered as it was, never actually focused on the parents. Yes. And by giving them personality and their own perspective, it allows you to empathize with yeah. them more. I mean, like why they became super villains? You know? Yeah, they, it's not just like they woke up one day and be like, I mean, yeah. you know, let's do crime. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting twist. I mean, in the comics, they they kind of mention it here and there, but I mean, perspective was mostly on the children. Yes. That's uh, one of the major complaints of the show, to be honest, actually. Uh-huh. That it doesn't focus enough on the kids and focus too much on the parents. But I feel that there is a positive. Yeah, it was a good, yeah, it was a good balance. And yeah. it, it gave the kids... Uh, I mean, by the time it, it reached like mid season, mm. it it did um, it did drive that that it did start to get uh, the momentum going. Correct, right? It, got, it kind it, of was slow at the first few episodes. It had to be in terms yeah, of world building, world building establishing. So it's fine. Yeah. But by the time you got to the fifth, sixth episodes, it was like, okay, let's go. Like, we are going to run away soon. Yes. Um, <laughs> to be fair, they did only run away <laughs> in the final, final scene of the scene. last episode, <laughs> and it took ten episodes for them to fulfill its promise of the title, the runaway, which was quite um a- aggravating for yeah. me. Uh, as much as I enjoyed how well produced and mm-hmm. how well acted mm-hmm. and how beautiful it looked, the music was good. Yeah. Um, I like you know the parents and everything, yeah. but you know for a show called Runaways to not have any runaways <laughs> until the last. To be honest, until the next episode, the first episode of season two, yeah. <laughs> is is a bit frustrating, and I mean, yeah. the lack of pace is what people are complaining. I agree, um, but overall, I felt that this series was um, a good indication that Marvel TV can expand into its other, mm. and Marvel comics can expand more into their more uh, less less red. Comics, sure, yes. Yeah. Um, um, Freeform's adaptation of Cloak and Dagger has a very Runaways vibe. Yeah, I mean, mm. uh, so they, Cloak and Dagger did appear on the Runaways in the comics. In the comics, yeah. yeah. So this, uh, they, Cloak and Dagger themselves are Runaways. Yeah, they are Runaways. Yeah. Yeah. They, they um, were the ones giving advice to the Runaways. They were the OG Runaways. Yeah, they're, they're the OG Runaways. Uh, so, I mean, that's interesting. I'm looking forward to Cloak and Dagger as Same. well. They look perfectly cast too. Yeah. Uh, again, a teen drama. Um, this this particular series is created by Josh Watts, who is mm-hmm. very famous for the OC. Yeah. And if you've ever seen the OC, you know that what makes it great, right, is this focus on the parents. Yeah. It wasn't like just focusing on the teens, mm-hmm. although they do, do do the teenage drama yeah, really yeah. well, the interpersonal relationships, the love triangle between uh, Nico, Chase, and Gert. Yeah. Uh, perfect as well, you know. Uh, Nico and Carolina. Carolina. Yeah, the the, gay, the lesbian couple. The lesbian couple. It was very well done as well. So yeah. a lot of good representation in Runaways in yeah. terms of race, LGBT, community and culture. Uh, although, I mean, they are rich. La. But I guess kids. La. Yeah. La. They but are it's a diverse a bunch of privileged kids though. You have your Asian, your, your, your black, mm. your African-American, And different subcultures also. you got your golf, your, your, your job, your nerd, your nerd you yeah. know. Yeah. It's uh, all the 80s tropes. Yeah. Breakfast Club. <laughs> in a way, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, but bre- slightly better though. Then Breakfast Club? No, 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 in terms of the diversity. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not the story. <laughs> hey, relax. <laughs> breakfast Club for Mutant. <laughs> yeah. Um, Brian Kevon has referenced the Breakfast Club a lot. Like, yeah, yeah, as, of course. That's a big inspiration. So yeah. uh, they, this is what the show is more. Like. Mm. It focuses more on the teenage soap opera aspects yes. of uh, Marvel comics than a usual TV show like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or yeah. Daredevil would. Yeah. But it's a nice change of face 
And mm. everyone always talks about the malleability of what comics can be, yeah. and this is what it is. Uh. Yes. It doesn't need to take place in Hell's Kitchen, like all the other four, <laughs> the four Netflix shows that yeah. take place you know, in New York. In New York, <laughs> la. Or it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be in space. Or yeah. uh, there, there are different aspects to this. I agree. And uh, Runaways is a perfect encapsulation of a teenage soap opera. I agree. Uh, done in this universe, yeah. very believably. I I believe so. I, I I think that is something that can be recommended to. Yeah, the people uh, They should watch it. Uh. Yeah, uh, we just have to add the caveat that they do not run away till the end. Yeah. So please do not be frustrated as I was. Yeah. Uh, try try to approach the show with an open mind, and as its own thing, mm-hmm. and don't expect it to be a faithful adaptation of yeah. Brian K. Vaughan's Runaways. No, to be fair, it's quite a faithful adaptation. It is. Adaptation. Um, it's faithful not so much in terms of story, but in terms of spirit. Yeah. What what the runaways meant to represent Correct. is what the show represents. I agree. And as long as you keep true to its spirit, I feel like it's, it's a faithful adaptation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll be talking about another. Uh, I guess now we can call it a Marvel adaptation. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> a Disney adaptation. Uh-huh. Now that uh, Fox has <laughs> bought the over. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> we'll be talking about the gifted. Mm. The gifted is a new television series by Matt Nix, and it takes place in the X Men universe in yeah. Fox. Uh, Matt Nix are most famous for creating a show called Burn Notice mm-hmm. about Spice. Uh, yeah, Spice is uh, Spice and Sunglasses in Miami. In Miami, yeah. Very, very fun show. Very quickly paced show. Right. If you've ever seen Burn Notice, you would know how the gifted is gonna go. Uh, this basically looks at the day-to-day lives of and the discrimination and oppression of mutants that the movies don't really deal uh, yeah. deal with. More of a uh, yeah, you're right, you're right. Yeah, uh, you you caught a majority of the first season. What are your up, impressions? Up to so episode far? seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. I really love the world building. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like Sentinel Services. I mean, uh, the idea of uh, how... Uh, you had this, you had this uh, feeling of, of um, desperation for the mutant mm-hmm. that was, wasn't really caught in the movies. Because the movies, um, as I kind of elaborated upon in the last episode, yeah. always feel like a season finale. Correct. Uh, you don't see what led up and, that, that moment, right? and the small the small moments of discrimination or oppression yeah. which might seem mundane but if you watch Black Lightning you know little things like yeah. a black man being pulled over and that happening How repeatedly it resonates, it resonates yeah. and it just gets you pissed off la. so yeah so that was something that the gifted kind of uh, mm-hmm. impressed me with la. Mm. The, the fact that uh, that always that feeling of getting caught yeah you know they're, they're, they're always running away oh sorry <laughs> No pun to us. <laughs> I mean, you know, the other show also had a mutant. Although yeah. they never actually caught more. They never called her a mutant. Yeah. Yeah. So this this idea of them always being in danger, never being truly safe, mm-hmm. um, is something that yeah that, that can be watching uh, Yeah. You know, and that the main character, the the father. Yeah. Bill from um, Vampire Shuga. Bill. Uh? <laughs> Vampire Bill. Stephen Moyer. Stephen Moyer. Yeah, but I, every time I watch it, it's like oh, Vampire <laughs> Bill. Same. <laughs> yeah, I was too, Bill. <laughs> So you know his journey. Yeah. You know his acceptance uh, of his kids being mutants. Yeah. Uh, his struggles with like Sentinel services mm. and like uh, what he, to do next. Him being so. a human and caught on both sides. On both sides, yeah. right? Uh, that I felt was very very compelling. Yeah. Which I'm yeah looking forward to finishing up the season. Uh. Correct. Yeah. yeah. What do you think? Uh, I mean, I, I finished the season and I, I think it's it's quite it's quite spectacular and one of the more consistent new uh, Marvel shows out there. Mm. Um, I think that towards the end of the season it will focus more on the usual philosophical aspects of the X-Men which yeah. is Malcolm X versus uh, Dr. Doctor King. Li- yeah, Dr. King. Yeah. Violence uh, and non-violence. Violence and non-violence. The different approaches towards uh, dealing with oppression. oppression. Yeah. And, and that in itself is very interesting. The dichotomy between the mutant underground and the reformed Hellfire Club led by the Stafford Cuckoos. Yeah. 
Brilliant. Brilliant. The Stafford Cuckoos themselves are actually the highlight of this uh, particular season. Can't it's, wait to see them. It's almost as if the last five episodes is an origin story for them. Oh, okay. And, and the more that I get to know them, the more I want this to be the Stafford Cuckoos show. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I realise that like, there are more important issues out there as mm-hmm. well. Uh, and one thing that it does address that the movies never address. Yeah. Because the movies, when they talk about Magneto and Professor X, are specifically played by Michael Fassbender and James McAvoy, who acted the shit out of those roles yeah. and really emoted. <laughs> yeah. Um, it talks about, you know, Malcolm King and Malcolm... Uh, sorry, uh, no, X and Dr. King. Who? I cross wires. Yeah, uh, Martin Luther King and yeah. Malcolm X. I would watch that. Yeah. Malcolm King. Yeah. Malcolm King. It's like Onslaught. It's yeah. like it's basically the like Onslaught. Oh my god, Onslaught is Malcolm King. <laughs> Who's the juggernaut in this? Never mind. Yeah, um, so they usually only focus on do. Mama Ali is juggernaut. Oh boy. Yeah, okay, sorry. Totally won't watch Makes that. Makes sense, <laughs> makes sense. We should pitch this to Fox. We will. Um, so, like, it only takes uh, two perspectives from the oppressed side. Yes. But what I really love about The Gifted in it is it focuses on the human side as well. So, yeah, yeah. Why they fear the mutants, yeah. why they might want to take such uh, precautions against yeah. mutants. And when you see some stories from the human perspective, yeah. uh, you kind of understand why they would go to such lengths to do these things. I mean, spoiler alert, but like the Sentinel Services agent. Yeah. Right? I mean, what happened to what his happened, child? Why was he like that? Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, it kind of deals with what Civil War deals with. Yeah. Unchecked power. The, yeah. Um, the social responsibility of having powers like this and mm-hmm. you getting to big battles and unintended consequences. Correct. And I thought that, that did a better job. I mean, this series did a better job in explaining that mm. than, um, let's say, the comics in Civil War 1. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, I feel like Mark Miller is not very good with uh, quote-unquote issues. Mm. <laughs> He's good with the fighting. He's good with the fighting. Yeah. <laughs> the fighting was great. The fighting was great. <laughs> yeah. uh, but when actually dealing with the philosophical aspects yeah. of it. So I thought The Gifted, yeah, it does, it's just very different from the, the mutant, from the whole X-Men series. Mm-hmm. But still, there's something oddly familiar to it. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, I like also that the mutants that we're focusing on are younger mutants. Yes. Uh, they're kind of dealing with the legacies of their parents. Yep. Sefa Kukus obviously de- dealing with Emma Frost. Emma Frost. Uh, Polaris, who might or might not be Magneto's daughter. daughter. But, you know, I mean, she is. She is. Yeah. <laughs> and a bunch of other mutants. Yeah. The only downside is, right, I only have one complaint about this yeah. season, is that random detour into the Mexican cartel storyline. Yeah, I, I just started that. The Mexican guy, yeah. yeah. I'm like, why? Who's the actor, by the way? Uh, I don't know. Uh, we should we should keep track of like yeah. the the cast more. He's not Vampire Bill. Um, he's not Entourage guy, right? Is he from Entourage? Really? I don't think so. I hope not. I, he no. just gave me the vibe of the Entourage guy. His name is uh Sean Teo. He plays Marcus Diaz, uh, the re- rebellious mutant who can ad- absorb and manipulate photons. You know, yeah. he, he's basically Cyclops with his hands. His uh his name is Eclipse, right? Eclipse, correct. Yeah. <coughs> uh, my favourite actress on the show is uh, Imiaka, you know, from Angel and, yeah, yeah. and all that. I, I think she's the most accomplished actor there. Everyone else is serviceable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. is the only one that kind of above and beyond. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but other than that, it's... Oh, um, another downside. I'm not really fond of the people who play the two kids, the two main protagonists of the show. Oh, the... Yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, Natalie, um, Ellen Lin. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and uh, I think Sean Teo. No, no, uh, Sean Teo is the other guy. Um, Kobe Bao. Well. Yeah, so it's uh they they could be better. La. They could. Uh right now they just come across as annoying teens, which is the worst trope ever in television. But it's alright. I mean season two might be better. Yeah, they are growing. Um yeah. minor spoiler if you don't mind. Go ahead, man. Uh the boy child, the more violent one, mm. uh joins the Hellfire Club at the I end. Knew it. 
because obviously it's not even that big of a spoiler because yeah, you, you can't you can't kind of the traction the, the, the track was there already. Yeah. yeah because the other girl had defensive powers which yeah. is a metaphor for her you know protecting peace and, and protecting yeah. he was an offensive, offensive power yeah. and he always wanted to go on an attack rather than defend yeah uh, you know like why do you have to wait around I mean for... he was always biting at a bit he was like come mm. on make me let me use my powers from the second he discovered his powers yeah right? yeah, yeah so he does join the newly formed Hellfire Club Makes sense. Who, Makes sense. who adhere to Magneto's values ah, okay yeah, because Magneto's um, brotherhood has been disbanded, right? Correct. Or are they? Ooh. There are, there are people in the shadows that call themselves former members of the brotherhood. Are they the new brotherhood? Yeah, exactly. Uh, all of this will be explored more in the second season. Can't wait for that. Yeah. Again, recommended. Yeah, recommend. Uh, if you're talking about the shows on this podcast and we make it a main, it's topic, all recommended. It's probably recommended. Yeah. We have a couple of things that I really want to trash later. But we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, next, we'll be talking about Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. Yes. Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams is also an anthology series. Uh, it's actually showrun by none other than Ronald D. Moore. Mm-hmm. Ronald D. Moore of Battlestar Galactica fame. Uh-huh. Uh, but the only difference is that Ronald D. Moore doesn't do all the episodes. It's not oh. like Charlie Brooker and Alan Bell Jones. Okay. All 10 episodes are written and directed by different British and American writers or directors. Which a real anthology then. A real anthology which gives each episode a more unique flavour than Black Mirror does because okay. it deals with different themes, it deals with different situations, uh, and it deals with... Uh, it's just more varied lah, in terms okay. of the storytelling that it can offer. It initially premiered in the United Kingdom on Channel 4 on septem- 17 September, but that was not available to us in Singapore. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but it recently premiered in Amazon uh, this January. Uh, it comprises of 10 episodes, Mm-hmm. And it is based on Philip K. Dick's bi- bibliography. Oh, uh, okay. If you know, uh, I mean, he had tons of short stories. Uh. I mean, if you don't know Philip K. Dick and you're listening to this, I'm not sure you can call yourself a nerd. Like, yeah, or because a sci-fi most, fan. most most sci-fi TV that, or movies that I've seen mm-hmm. somehow is related to Philip K. Dick. Yeah, uh, I mean, like I I just want to point out that Philip K. Dick is a legend in the sci-fi field. Definitely. Uh, if you haven't read his work, his works are essential and has yeah. influenced the, some of the most. It, some of the most uh, influential modern movies and television shows and manga and comics and okay. all of that it all came a lot of the ideas came from Philip K. Dick yeah and we can't talk about him without talking about Blade Runner yeah and everything that Blade Runner has influenced exactly yeah. so um, Philip K. Dick's book Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep yes. is the basis of Blade Runner uh, movies like Minority Report TV shows like um, <coughs> The Man in High Castle yeah. uh, A Scanner Darkly these are just some of his most popular properties but I always refer to Philip K. Dick as the, the J. Diller of sci-fi. <laughs> like, there are dozens and dozens of his works that are popularized, but if you dig into his bag, there are hundreds more where that came from. Yep. And that's why he's perfect for an anthology series such as this. Agreed. Now, one downside to that is what? that Philip K. Dick's work has become so transcendent and influential yeah. that you might feel that this show is recycling things. Uh, that yes. it feels familiar, yes. but it's not the show's fault or Philip K. Dick's fault. Is because that every other sci-fi show and writer <coughs> has taken inspiration. Yeah. So his themes have been recycled over the last 50, 60 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's the only reason why you might feel that, oh, this isn't as groundbreaking as you hype it up to be. But you have to keep in mind that he wrote these stories like five decades ago. Yeah. Uh, most of these are really uh, great short stories. Isa has caught a few of the episodes. Yeah. Uh, what are your initial impressions? Okay. So I caught uh, The Hoodmaker and Impossible Planet? World. Impossible Planet. Very different episodes. Yeah, very, very different episodes. Um, and the first thing that struck me, I mean, I've only caught two out of that. I'm, I'm hoping to finish all of it soon. Mm. And maybe you can add to that later on. But uh, it's been... It's it's very much an anthology. 
right? Yes, and more than Black Mirror. More than Black Mirror is just just because like you've got different people writing the script, you've yeah. got different people helming uh, the director's yeah. helm. And we're not just talking about the writing, as in like the visual look of each episode yeah. is so different. As yeah, well, and, and, and I think this is like clearly like it's completely opposite to what like they've just done in Black Mirror season four, whereby mm-hmm. now they're unifying it into a single universe. Correct. Uh, the worlds can't be any more different. Yeah. At least from what I've seen so far yes. of the two and half ish episodes that I've seen. It's, it will be impossible to link this universe. Yeah. So uh, there's 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 definitely no uh, threat of that happening mm-hmm. in this particular round. Um, let's talk about Hoodmaker. Yeah. Right. So I I quite like Hoodmaker. Uh, I thought the world was interesting. I didn't feel as though the world building was particularly strong, but then again, they only had what fifty minutes yeah. to kind of do all of that. Um, and it was interesting how they decided to take liberties with the source material. Mm. You know? And it's an adaptation. Though. Yeah, it's a, it, but in this particular, it was a very loose adaptation. Actually. I mean, Ronnie was very loose too. That is true. That is true. And it focused uh, more on um, noir, noir aspects and atmospherics, which Hoodmaker is yeah, similar to that. Yeah. Um, I just felt that the okay. So Hoodmaker <laughs> essentially was about uh, we live in a world where um, the government has weaponized telepaths. Yeah. Yeah. Tips and uh, they're the, they feared for good reason. Yeah, they're feared for good reason. So in the original story, uh, if I remember my short stories correctly, it has something to do with uh, a government agent who discovers uh, this hood that prevents the tips from actually reading his mind. Correct. Right, and the implications of that plays out in the story. Mm. Uh, but for this particular one, we we um, we look at uh, a government agent again. And a team who is partnered with him, and the implications of that relationship, and how that relationship plays out in that particular world. It's a it's a more personal story. It is uh, a lot more personal, a lot more human or yeah. meta human. <laughs> yeah. So so it may be. It's uh, a love story, actually. Yeah. If you and I thought I, I I liked it. I, I wish there had been a bit more world building. There are all these references to the old world Correct. and how the internet used to work back then, and mm. now that's been replaced by this psychic network. Mm. You know, um, she even does like this, like this Google Google it thing in yeah. her mind. Um, um, it's it's a concept actually invented by Anne Rice, where telepaths can read other telepaths, who read other telepaths, who read other telepaths, yeah. and like that you can read the minds of everyone in the world. Uh. Yeah, uh, so it's the telepaths are broadly um, space. Yeah, uh, it's um, it's an interesting concept that I've seen a couple of times in anime, especially for uh, what is it called, Electric Railgun. But yeah, we we'll, we'll get to anime later. Yeah. Uh, so I thought it was pretty good. Impossible Planet was. A lot truer to the short story itself. Yes, and I think like the good side of that was it. It it managed to bring about a lot of the visual aspect in the short story trippy, that you huh? have to. Yeah, yeah. very trippy. Yeah. Uh, very cool visuals. Yeah. Uh, but like the short story, it didn't feel like co- complete. You yes. know, uh, in terms of like there was no but no specific ending to it. There's a lot it, of things hung in the air. It felt more like a tone poem. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's meant to be ambiguous. Yeah, and, and and the short story was a lot like that, right? And there were just like maybe a couple of differences. So very true to form, mm-hmm. uh, very true to the text itself. Uh, but at the same time, like so different from what the Hoodmaker was, Correct. you know, which was a loose adaptation. It took yeah. a lot of liberties with it, but ultimately it told a great story. A better story. Yeah, a better story yeah. in that. Then in Bosnia, which kept the text, yeah, uh, and tried to fill it in with like the visual aspect of it, yeah, and different that, approaches. Different approaches. 
I'm not really sure. I, I mean, I can't, I can't uh, talk about the entire anthology per se because I haven't watched all of it. Mm-hmm. But the, these two different approaches make me very excited to catch everything else. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm, I'm really trying to see like what works and what doesn't. Because something like Electric Dreams is, um, it, it gives us a very good look into how directors and writers and, and uh, screenwriters uh, approach doing adaptations, which is which is a dime a dozen these days. Of course, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like um, the first job of a person adapting a work has to be uh, to make sure whether it fits the medium or not. Yeah, uh, sure. you, you can't be Zack Snyder, Watchmen or 300 where you just lift directly everything without any consequence or yeah. thought or consideration into whether it works in this medium. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and in this particular case, it works more often than it doesn't. Mm. Uh, Hoodmaker was actually one of my favourites from the season. Uh, not... not in the top five, but I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah. I enjoyed the kind of um, it's very reminiscent of seventies IRA paranoia in the UK. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I feel like that's what they were drawing from. Mm. Uh, the new Noah, the new Noah look also felt very seventies, although obviously took place in the future. Yeah. That's what I liked about it. Um, the commuter is a very depressing episode and the most black mirrorish of episodes. Oh, okay. The commuter, not the Liam Neeson movie where he's on a train <laughs> killing people. This is another well, commuter. That would be a Black Mirror episode too. <laughs> Being stuck on a train with a murderer, Liam Nielsen. Yeah. <laughs> um, the commuter is about a man named Ed Jacobson. He is very unhappy with his life. He works at a railway station. Oh, okay. Uh, he has a son who is borderline autistic. Um, I'm not quite sure how to describe him. Yeah. Borderline autistic. Okay. Uh, and he has violent tendencies. He has uh, violent rages. He acts out. Sometimes he hurts people. Sometimes he hurts animals. And he has, uh, he has trouble dealing with that. Mm. And his marriage is falling apart because of that. Right. One day he encounters a woman who goes to a particular station that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he follows her to that and whenever you go to this particular station and you come back, your ideal life has magically happened. Ah, so okay. in this ideal life, his son does not exist and was never born. Oh, wow. And at first, he enjoys it but then he grows to miss his son. You know, like he, he's trying to explain to this woman, I want my son back. Uh, there are moments of joy, you know, despite all my depression. You know, I love, I love my son. Uh, but the woman is trying to explain, this woman is apparently omniscient. Mm. She she she's trying to explain that like in the future your hun- your son would hurt a lot of people. You because of your resentment would hurt your wife. Do you really want that? You know, are these moments of joy and love worth it? Wow. Uh, and that's the question that he's forced to answer by the end. And I I won't spoil what what his choice is, but it's actually quite interesting and very profound, mm. and very human. And and that's why it's one of my favorite episodes as well. Um, something that is. Uh, totally on the opposite end of the yeah. scale is a murder mystery called Real Life written and directed by Ronald D. Moore himself of Battlestar Galactica fame mm-hmm. basically it takes it follows two police or not two police officers two crime fighters shall we say Okay. Uh, one is a police officer and one is basically Bruce Wayne oh okay mm-hmm. uh, but black played by Terrence Howard and the police officer is played by Anna Paquin so oh, Bruce wow. Wayne as in millionaire vigilante correct ah okay so uh, both of these people exist in different timelines oh. one exists in the far future and one exists in our present day Okay. Both of them apparently are hunting the same criminal. Okay. Uh, but because they've been so traumatized by what this criminal has done to them, in in particular with Anna Paquin, Anna Paquin's uh police academy class was bombed by this criminal. Uh, on the other side, Terence Howard's wife uh, became a viral video. Her murder was uh caught on tape and oh, wow. forcing him to pay a ransom, which he didn't pay. Uh, so both of them are kind of traumatized by this. What they do right is they use an they use basically a dream technology. Mm-hmm. So they put this on their head, a bit like Black Mirror's yeah. uh, AR, um, VR kind of thing, yeah. where it allows them to escape to another world. 
where it's just they, it takes your subconscious and builds another world for you that you can escape into that is better. Hmm. But the thing is with this particular episode, you don't know which is the real world. Because when Anna Paquin goes to sleep, she does this and she wakes up as Terrence Howard. When Terrence Howard goes to sleep and oh, she does this, he wakes up as Anna Paquin. That's like a sideways? Uh, a little bit. It's like this other show. Oh no, sideways is about wine, isn't it? Oh no. Oh my no, god, no, what was the other one? Um, there's like, this short-lived series called Awake. Oh, oh yes, yeah. yes, I remember that. Mm. Right. So this is very interesting because you never know right up to the end mm. who is the real person. Oh shit, okay. Yeah, and, and and both of them have valid, valid arguments as to why both are real. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because uh, neither of their lives are perfect. Uh-huh. And each each of these personalities has something that they want in their other life. Okay. okay. Uh, so you never know till the end what, what does it... Who want to catch that now? Yeah, that's, it's quite brilliant. Ronald D. Moore, mm-hmm. he, he takes a, a very grounded approach to a very far-fledged okay. uh, uh, theme or concept. Uh, another favorite episode, in fact, the favorite episode of all, is called Kill All Others by D. Reese. Mm-hmm. If you have not seen D. Reese's movie Mudbound on Netflix, it's actually one of the most important films of 2017. Yeah. It's about the American Deep South, you know, and the hardships that uh, both the African American communities and white community. people face. Uh, this time, she creates a show, um, I mean, she adapts a, a story called Kill All Others. Basically, it's a Trumpian analogy. Oh. So, this is just. Uh, we, it takes place in a world where North America is one giant country. Oh, okay. It's called Max Asken. Mexico, uh, US, Canada. Makes sense. Max Asken. Yeah. Uh, and all under the rule of one president. So this president is making a speech from there. Uh-huh. Very innocuous speech. Uh-huh. Like uh, talks about, you know, we need to invest in the public school system, we need to invest in roads and uh, the economy, blah, so blah, blah. populist kind of thing. Uh. Uh, yeah, but I mean, nothing really to get up in arms about. Yeah, and nothing. then she makes a cat, uh, in the middle of that, right, she makes a comment, comment like, uh, and we also need to kill all others. And then she moves on. Right? And everybody thinks nothing of it. Nobody thinks it's weird except for him. Huh. He's the only one that keeps talking to other people. It's like, don't you think that was weird that she said, you know, kill all, all others? What are others? Who yeah. are others? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the more he starts questioning this in public, the more he becomes an other. Oh. It's about the normalization of radical things. Uh. Mm. Like, you know how Trump says the most outlandish things? Yeah. And when you normalize it, it's quite scary. Yeah. Oh. Uh, kill all others is, is probably like one of the most relevant to today yeah. episodes that they are and maybe that's why it resonates so highly la, also, also deeply uh, Safe and Sound another great episode by Alan Taylor um, it takes place in near dystopia future where America is split into two mm-hmm. one is very uh, afraid of terrorism and okay. they have uh, tight checks you know, in schools there are mental detectors okay. there are bracelets that track everywhere not that far fetched not that far fetched actually yeah. ex- exactly but the other half of America has choose, chosen not to live that way oh. they live in a free society hippie Hip- Yes, it's exactly, they portray as hippies. Oh, okay. Uh, so it, it, this story is particularly about a diplomat from the free world going into the, the, the control world. Yeah, this, the, yeah, the control world. Uh. Uh-huh. And the doctor follows her because you know, it's a diplomatic mission and she yeah. has to live one year in, the, in, oh, wow. uh, in this very tightly controlled, paranoid society. Like, there's Ooh. always a fear of terrorism. And the more that she lives there, the more paranoid she becomes mm. uh, because they are afraid of the people from the other side, the west side. Who they, the freedom people. The freedom people who they claim have uh, staged terrorist attacks and suicide bombings against them. Really enough, nobody's actually ever seen it. They've only seen it on the news. Ah. Yeah. But uh, it comes to a point at the end where even the doctor is convinced that her mother is a terrorist. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's about the it's in the implications of a paranoid 24-hour news society where the government continually tells you who to be afraid of, who to believe. North Korea. Uh, the others. Uh, it could be North Korea or and even... Early America now. America oh. today. Oh yeah, the uh, early Mexican. Yeah, early, early Mexican. Mexican. 
Yeah, uh, safe, and, safe and sound is really great. Um, After Fact is probably the most beautiful of the shows. It stars uh, Janelle Monet oh, as wow. an android. Oh. And I think I'm just going to end it there because that tells the episode. Okay. Yes, yeah. totally. Uh, this is a wildly, wildly uneven series. Oh, okay. At its worst, it is intriguing but predictable. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, through no fault of Pilot Kedik because his themes have just been used. so overused yeah. by other people. Yeah. But at its, as it, at its best, it is a very um, fascinating and insightful look into the human condition mm-hmm. that I don't think you can find on Black Mirror. Okay. So this is a refreshing alternative. Right. This is your outer limits to the Twilight Zone. Right? The, the, the age of the anthology is back. Ah, that's such a good analogy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. I know. Well, let's move on. <laughs> so I host this thing. Uh, before we move on to Isis Anime Corner, I would just like to shout out... Downsizing? Yeah, a little movie called Downsizing. It's uh, written by written and directed by Alexander Payne, who, um, weirdly enough, I saw brought up sideways. Yeah. <laughs> a movie about wine. Yeah. No universes yeah. there, but you know... Wine can Why make you feel that way. Yeah. Uh, so he's written things like about Schmidt, Election, Sideways, and The Descendants, yep. uh, some of my favorite movies. Uh, he, his themes that he likes to explore are middle-aged men facing an existential or middle-aged crisis, and how a seemingly random series of events leads them on a personal journey. Mm. So the journey isn't so important so much as what you discover about yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's very similar to downsizing okay. but I've just never seen him tackle a concept this high before yeah. it's a sci-fi concept so it's like Honey and the Kids but on a more societal level yeah. uh, like when scientists discover how to shrink humans to 5 inches tall uh, as a solution to overpopulation mm-hmm. uh, solution to you know environmental degradation mm-hmm. stuff like that Paul played by Matt Damon and his wife Audrey decide to abandon their stressed lives in order to get a small okay. and move to a new downsized community mm-hmm. quote unquote uh, a choice that triggers life changing adventures so uh, the concept itself is very interesting in how they build their world the scale of economy fr- in the downsized world and in the our world the yeah. big world uh, how they come to that conclusion like for example, if you're worth maybe like $20,000 in the real world They'd be worth like $20 million For example, yeah. I don't, that's not the exact scale no, I know, I know. But like, uh, that's what the movie implies okay. Because obviously, if you want to eat meals when you buy a home It, yeah. it costs very little yeah. And it explores a lot of that, like, it talks about the larger issues of the real world Some stories are metaphors, you know yeah. mm. Like allegories in microcosm But, you know, this is microcosm <laughs> quite literally <laughs> like, And yeah. I've never seen it taken so literally before um, downsizing has very interesting to s- things to say about the economy, the environment, wage disparity and class divisions. But the film's wild narrative curves, yeah, there, yeah. and there are a lot of twists and turns, never allows it to stay with one theme too long, so it's never quite fully fleshed out. Mm-hmm. Although whatever they do bring up is interesting. Right. Like for example, how do big people feel about the little people taking away jobs and economy and money, mm-hmm. and why they are allowed such better lives, even though they're not actually contributing to the economy of the big world. Yeah. You know, things like that, but it's just kind of part in passing and then they move on to the next theme which is uh, envi- the environment why people need to be small and then they move on to the next theme which is class divisions and then they move on to the next theme and the next theme so um, I would like the world building to be a bit more fleshed out mm-hmm. and for them to maybe stick to one theme to really explore what that means uh, but in the end as I mentioned about Alexander Payne that's not really what he's interested in mm-hmm. it's about Matt Damon's personal journey la. and human story, la. yeah the grounded humanism and like the poignant personal journey <coughs> is his strength Okay. And downsizing often works or feels bigger when the stakes are when the stakes are smaller. All right, uh, yeah, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> yeah, so um, that is downsizing. Um, I think it's worthwhile to catch it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's not a must-see or essential by any means. Okay. Yeah. But it, it it is an interesting film. Uh, one of Alexander Payne's mid-range movies, lah. Yeah. Uh, it's not as interesting as Sideways. Let's <laughs> talk <laughs> <laughs> about Sideways, guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's all I have to say about downsizing. Now, right. Isa is gonna go into Isa's anime corner. We should have a theme song for this. Yeah, man. Oh, next yeah, episode. yeah. We should totally do that. I'm, I'm gonna find like a, a free J-pop song or something like that. No, you not just produce your own. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. That's yeah. true. Okay. Okay. I'll give that a try. <laughs> you can do the Devil Man Cry Baby theme song. Oh man, is, I love that theme song. It's such a bop. It's, I love it. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. Speaking of which, so um, basically this segment is about me, uh, sharing and talking about uh, recommendations for well the anime world pretty much and mm-hmm. what I've liked, what I really really recommend people watch. And um, before we get into any of that, can I just say the Netflix anime selection is kind of killing it at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really, really good uh, mix of old stuff and new stuff. Very well curated. There's something for everybody. Uh, and it's really been kind of, well, I mean, Netflix kind of has the advantage of doing that. But really kind of the hits from the last decade or so of anime and some of the best things that they've done so far. So let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the good stuff first. Okay. Um... Devilman, Crybaby, which yeah. is a uh, a remake, I guess, of like a really really popular eighties anime called Devilman. Of yeah. course, Crybaby uh, kind of modernizes that entire aesthetic and as well as update the themes that are going on. Yeah. Uh, again, in the whole the whole tune of uh, examining who who the others are and. Mm-hmm. Um, so on and so forth. So the basic premise, as with the original anime, so not really a spoiler. Uh, this boy gets possessed by a demon, mm-hmm. and uh, in this particular world, the demons are a uh, well non-human race that basically have have need, have been possessing life forms since the beginning of time, since they were cast out of heaven, okay. right? And in order to survive, they've adapted mm-hmm. all. Uh, they've adapted to the world by taking on the characteristics of the life forms they possess. So. Modern day, real world, uh, right now you have a boy who, I won't go exactly into how he gets possessed, but he basically gets possessed by a very, very powerful demon and somehow manages to subjugate the demon into his own personality. Yeah. And so a lot of it has to do with uh, him sh- that internal struggle between uh, his own identity and merging with that of the demon, as well as... Uh, the ideas of trying to understand who he is right now, yeah. now that he is both at the same time, not quite human, not quite demon, uh, and in this like sort of hybrid existence, mm-hmm. his place in the world. It's like an alternate universe Britney Spears song. Oh, yeah, well, we're probably not quite. Yes, yes. I'm guessing you could probably put a few Britney, Britney songs to the Not quite sequences. a human, not yet, not yet a demon. A demon. <laughs> So it basically, I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, the art style is reminiscent of the old eighties art style, mm. but much more fluid uh, and much more, oh, sometimes like shockingly sexual, and trippy and bright. Um, Netflix says the Netflix being a streaming service yeah. you can do this. Yeah, uh, it, it's been excellent, and I think Netflix has been putting a lot of uh, money into really, really good bets recently. Uh, of course, there's plenty of other things that they haven't yeah. that have been hit and missed, but. Yeah, uh, highly recommend it. It's uh, it's not too short of a, it's not too long of a watch. Mm. It's about twenty to twenty five episodes and about eight to twelve. Is it twelve episodes? Twelve episodes. Well, your standard like anime yeah. season. I do have to mention that the Devil Man Cry Baby 
theme song has become quite a meme online. Yeah. Where people <laughs> are just editing it to um, other TV shows or people dancing on the streets and it's quite hilarious. Yeah. Check it out. It, it is, yeah. It's really, really good. Yeah. Um, the other one which I think, I guess is um, a little more obscure is this one that is called Violet Evergarden. Mm. Um, it's been what three episodes in and I'm hooked I'm invested artwork is gorgeous uh, it's reminiscent of uh, I think it's Kyoto Studio that had, uh, that did it and they've done some amazing stuff in the last couple of years very very detailed very very colourful um, music the score is amazing uh, and essentially you're they are in a post-war world you don't really know whether it's near future or far future but it centres around a former child soldier slash weapon who is trying to reintegrate herself into society. And she does so by working for a post office where they have these things called uh, automatic dolls, uh, automatic, automatic message dolls, which was the original name for the typewriter. Oh! Right? So that's the original name of the typewriter and the, type, uh, the creator of the typewriter created the typewriter so that his wife, who was a novelist, and turning blind yeah. could continue to write her story. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so okay, the, okay. that was the original name and that, that moniker has now been um, transferred to these uh, girls who essentially help the uneducated okay. uh, to write letters to mm-hmm. other people in a post-war world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a booming business, but she's been a soldier for so long. She's known it all her life. And uh, she's got like her arms been replaced and they're made of metal. So all the technical things, she's great at. She's a great worker, she's hardworking, she follows orders. uh, But she simply doesn't understand how to emote. Right. And her entire reason, she chooses uh, this profession uh, at the the, um, behest of her benefactor is because she wants to understand what emotion is and the ability to express that. So, so far, it's been basically about her struggle, trying to get to know the job, the details of the job, and trying to execute her job as best as possible in this military uh, approach that she's always known. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's been great so far. I, I think it's going to shape up to be a great anime. Uh, already, like, all the technical aspects of it have been very impressive. Uh, but I'll be keeping a look out for that. Awesome. Um, Any other animes you want to recommend? Or disrecommend if there's one. Okay, so one more good stuff. Is, this is not really an anime, but anime related. Netflix has also done a live Ooh. action adaptation of Blade, Blade of the of Immortal. The mm. And it is phenomenal. Now this is what... This is how a live action anime, anime <laughs> adaptation should be <laughs> like. Yeah, and we've gotten so sh- so much shit ones, right? Is this oh, the first good one? In a while. Oh, I, I did while. think that the first Samurai X movie was... More than, bad. more than serviceable yeah. right um, and the later ones were kind of trash but I think this this is the first time I've been genuinely impressed, impressed right? by one yeah, right same. and you know like sorry Hollywood like what you guys have been doing sucks yeah. uh, we'll see there are a couple more coming up this year yep, uh, yep, with yep. Uh, Battle Angel yeah. and Alita right yeah, uh, yeah Battle yeah. Angel Alita <laughs> which is actually eyes. yeah it's so <laughs> strange um, we'll see. We'll see if that turns out well. I mean, it is Spielberg after all. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see how that turns out. He has recently rediscovered his form with the post, although yeah. this is obviously very different. Yeah. And then he's going to do Ready Player One again, yeah. something else. Yeah. Very different. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, it looks like it, is, it might be Spielberg's year again. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see, yeah. Um, with, you, with all these big boxes. This has nothing to do with genre, but I just heard that Steven Spielberg is remaking West Side Story. Really? Yes. Wait, as a movie? Uh, yes, as a, as a musical. As a music, oh wow. musical movie, yeah. Is he like 
edging, making it edgier. I don't know. But my, my initial thought was like, after his success with Jaws, right, he wants to deal with more sharks. But Puerto Rican ones this time, not white ones. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's a, that's a little musical joke if you're a musical yeah, yeah, yeah. which I am too. Let's do a musical podcast. First. I don't mind. <laughs> we, we, we actually like talk about it in song and dance, then we compose like oh. new songs. Oh, oh, my Ooh, a lot of work. A lot of work. Yes, uh, so please catch that. Like, there's some sequences that I would have never thought possible to do live. Man. Especially the fight sequences. I mean, mm. because anime allows you to do pretty much anything. Yeah. Uh, but shot for shot, almost. That, like, the first scene, the one where he, like, fights, like, 200 people yeah, at one uh, time. Amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, you know, of course, it being a samurai, a samurai yeah. thing and all that, uh, heavily influenced by... Um, Kurosawa. Kurosawa. Uh, and of course, the original anime was heavily influenced. In fact, one of the first anime to directly kind of reference. like reference his style yeah. uh, and the cinematography that he did, and uh, and therefore you know kind of influencing a lot of samurai animes that we come with come to love mm-hmm. um, over the last. People are surprised, yeah. like uh, how how widespread Kurosawa's uh, influence is. Yeah. yeah. Um, to the point where even a lot of westerns are influenced by Kurosawa. Mm. You know, westerns have been a direct adaptation of Seven Samurai. samurai yeah. yeah. So excellent stuff, please go check that out. Now, on to the one kind of stickler I have. So, Can we talk about Godzilla? Yes, we are going yeah, to talk about Godzilla. 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 Then are the monsters. Oh, oh Jesus Christ. We so, were so hyped for we, you. Yeah, we were incredibly hyped. Because the, uh, the premise was cool. The premise was cool. Yeah. Uh, the trailer was great. Yeah. It didn't give too much away, right? which <laughs> I liked about. Yeah. Um, um, done by the same studio that brought you Knights of Cydonia yeah. and uh, Ajin, which have been two, of, two very, very big anime in the exactly. last five years. Yeah. Uh, with their very very specific cell shading art style that they have, which is coming increasingly popular. Yeah, right. So maybe talk about so cell cell shading has uh, become very popular in the last couple of years because it allows animation studios to save a lot of money mm. because a lot of processes are automated as yep, opposed yep, yep. to being drawn by drawn hand. by hand. Yeah. So she I thought it was cell shading on a seashell. Yeah, she shades cells on the seashell. Yeah. Uh, so explain the premise before we move on, I guess. Godzilla? Uh, yes. No, no, as in like this particular... Oh, cell shading. No, no, this particular, particular Godzilla. Godzilla right? So, uh, we've had... This is a different Godzilla. It is. Yeah. We've had um, the Hollywood adaptation of Godzilla. Not... Well, yes, that. Oh, right, okay. the 98 It had Puff Daddy, bro. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, some... Yeah. Met, uh, what's his name? Matthew... Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick. Yeah. 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 And I actually didn't mind that one that much if you kind of like take away all of the canon that Godzilla had before that. Yeah. It was an okay style. Gareth Edwards one was pretty good too. I really did like Gareth Edwards one. I just yeah. thought there were a couple of things that he could have addressed but it was a beautiful movie. Yeah. I I just quite hated like everybody body shaming Godzilla in that movie. Yeah. So what if he's fat? You know, it's not just that. I mean, I, like the focus on the monsters were great. But that I felt they kind of got away with some pretty shotting actings from some pretty great actors. Uh, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. Scarlet Witch yeah. and Quicksilver. Just two months before Age of Ultron came out, man. Yeah, this is quite and insane. it was like, oh my goodness. I mean, Ken you... Watanabe. Yeah, and, yeah. Not that fight. Right, and of course Brian Cranston, who would have been who died amazing. In the first yeah, and he died. But it also gave us the line, "Let them fight." Let them, Let fight. them fight. So. I guess it's a win. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. A great, great fight scenes. Great yeah. CGI. So this particular anime is about a far-flung future. Yeah. Where uh, Godzilla and other kaiju have taken over the Earth. Yes. And humans have moved to space. They have fled. With the help of um, extraterrestrials. Yes. So uh, in the in the war against Godzilla, mm. right? And apparently, like they say, they drop hundred and fifty nuclear bombs on, on Godzilla. On Godzilla. Nothing, Nothing happened. Yeah. Isn't nuclear bombs what made Godzilla? 
Uh, actually, they don't uh, address his origin here. Well, but then again, you yeah. know, it's been done to death. Uh, so kaiju's appear, yeah. start wrecking havoc around the world. Godzilla appears, yep, and starts wrecking the kaiju's and the humans. The world. Yeah. Uh, so ultimately, um, they decide that you know what, fuck this. I mean, the aliens, aliens come in. Came, yeah. Aliens tried to help the humans out. Yeah, they built uh, a mecha Godzilla. They said, yeah, they said they'll kill the Godzilla if they are given land to live yeah. on, right? Yeah. Mm. And uh, that doesn't work out. Mecha Godzilla uh, couldn't be switched on. Yeah, they couldn't switch on Mecha Godzilla. Have you tried turning it on and off? <laughs> they did. They did. Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't even turn on. Right? And so they, they hightail it out. Yeah. Right? And at the point when we uh, get into the story, the humans. 20 years? The humans and other races. Uh, 20 uh, years, right? 22 years. 22 years yeah. They have been wandering around space looking for a substitute to Earth. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, to cut a long story short, they head back to Earth yeah. and they realize that 20,000 years have passed. passed. Because of like the light speed stuff and all that. Yeah, well, relativity, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And um, they, they just want to go in, kick the shit out of Godzilla and reclaim the Earth. So why, why isn't this as um, good as other Godzilla adaptations? Well, for Shin Godzilla, right? Which was a great movie, in my opinion. Fantastic. One of yeah. the best yeah. Godzilla movies yeah. ever. Yeah. Yeah. The, the focus was on the bureaucracy, the political... Um, the the intrigue of Godzilla has always been, to me, is its metaphor. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I talked about sci-fi is always metaphor, right? Yes. Godzilla has always been a metaphor yes. for uh, nuclear fear and nuclear annihilation, especially yeah. in Japan post-Hiroshima uh, yeah. and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of is a representation of their fear. Yeah. And uh, stretching past that, you know, something like Shin Godzilla is about the inability of bureaucracy to, the deal, inertia, with, yeah. to deal with uh, natural disasters, right. or the inertia, the anyway, uh, how people are just sh- constantly shifting blame. blame yeah. or Instead of fixing the problem. Exactly. Which is all governments, all yeah. bureaucracy. Yeah. Yeah. And that was what's interesting about Godzilla. Like, it's the metaphor. It's the metaphor here. Yeah. Yeah. So for Shin Godzilla, you don't see Godzilla... Oh well, for all the Godzilla movies, you don't see Godzilla for for a fair bit. He's an idea. Yeah, He's an idea. And the the problem is with I think Planet of Monsters. Monsters is that it takes so much long <laughs> for them to actually get back to Earth, and the whole entire setup is draggy as fuck. Yeah, you know. And I think like uh, you expect more, or at least I expected more from an anime. Yeah. Uh, about Godzilla, right? I agree. Uh, the fights were short. Uh, the metaphor in this particular case was more of the Earth coming to reclaim herself. Godzilla as Gaia. Yeah, Godzilla as Gaia, pretty much, right? Uh, that metaphor was a little too on the nose, but at the same time, not completely um, explored. Yeah. You know? So they come back and they're just like firebombing this new Earth with new ecology mm-hmm. where everything is radio, kind of like radioactive and made of metal, organic metal and stuff like that. Mm. And they beat Godzilla and then they realise it's not Godzilla and that's the end of part one. Which I didn't know about. I thought it was the entire thing but apparently it's a two part thing. Yeah. So... I watched the first five minutes and then I couldn't even make it through this 80 minute thing. Yeah. And I don't want a part two. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like now that I've already invested like the time, right? Because I started on it four times before I actually got through the entire thing. Oh boy. I Just for you guys, by the way. Yeah. I only finished it because we, we wanted to talk about it. Yeah, um, we, we, need, we, we need something to like d- discourage viewers. It can't yeah. be, can be all positivity. True. Yeah. This is what so, I, I don't know. Like, I'm going to hold my reservations as a whole about Planet of the Monsters until part 2 comes out. But so far, I'm not impressed. Very disappointed. Okay. With a medium that offers you endless possibilities, they went with the most predictable uh, outcome mm-hmm. and the most predictable plot twist that yes. you saw coming a mile away. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's up to you. I mean, if you're a big, big Godzilla fan, maybe. 
right? Uh, but but you can skip it if you have you know other things in your life. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, uh, and I would highly recommend you to watch Shin Godzilla instead. Yes, yeah. Shin Godzilla is excellent. Yeah, Shin Godzilla being a live action, uh, managed to do so much more. Exactly right, <laughs> like oh man, just the thematic treatment alone was yep. great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so right now I'm just gonna quickly recommend my my quick recommend corner. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Which is what we call it, I guess. Uh, I'm gonna recommend three things. Number one is an Indonesian horror movie called Pengabdi Setan. It's a remake of a classic 1980 horror movie. Yep. Uh, this time by Joko Anwar, and it's actually become a sensation in Malaysia and uh, Indonesia. It's uh, I think one of the top uh, grossing movies of 2017 on any genre. Yeah. Uh, and I was, you know, kind of curious as to what the hype was. Yeah. It's actually pretty good. Um, Joko Anwar's commitment to the lo-fi film language of old school horror uh, really makes it feel familiar. But at the same time, his uh, patient character building and creative twists yeah. make it feel fresh. Uh, the scares are expertly staged. Um, yep, yeah, jump scares are there, but they're not cheap. Okay. Mm. It's built up via sequence. Like a good action sequence should have a payoff, which is the scale. Yeah. In this in this particular instance, you have like long tracking shots, oh. or you know, uh, things playing with like your your line of sight. Very very traditional lo-fi, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. horror film language, which uh, Joko Anwar really captures. Uh, and what makes it scarier? Okay, this is what I wanted to ask you guys, right? Like, what I feel like this movie is scarier to us because of context. Definitely. Uh, right. We grew up with this mythology and yeah. fearing these things, which yeah. is why say vampire stuff doesn't scare us you know mm. or yeah, okay. I mean yeah, you, you yeah. get what I mean la. Mm, but yeah. like you you you're set this is set in a kampong uh, you you poncho yeah yeah stuff like that la. Mm. It, it scares us la. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that context is key for horror as well oh definitely uh, in terms of your upbringing like, your culture I mean, for sure I mean yeah. like for this we will be different, definitely referencing stuff that we've watched before mm. as kids yeah. right? and what was scary back then mm. definitely for some of us, it's definitely going to be Yeah, but then now. you see on the other side also, there is like Korean horror, for example. Sure. Yeah, or Thai yeah. horror, for Thai example. Horror, so yeah. Like, Shutter became yeah. massive across the world. Mm-hmm. And I think like that entire period of time, especially when The Ring first came out, like yeah. the Japanese one, not yeah. the rubbish that Hollywood did, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that spewed that entire fascination with the way horror is told in Asia, yeah. mm. you know, and for Thailand, Southeast Asia in particular, yeah. that I think really captured Western imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, so I don't know. I don't know. I think it's definitely a more scary because it's close to home. Yeah. But if it's if it's good, I think that international appeal is not. So it's good. more like the direction. Yeah. You know, the, the, the how the story is played out. Mm. I, I, yeah, I feel like this is very well directed. Joko Anwar is a huge fanboy of the original film because okay. I went to watch the original film after this. Yeah. And, and he makes so many like clever, really like very nerd callbacks. Oh. Huh. Uh, which oh, I kind of never seen in a Malay context. Okay. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, yeah. Uh, he. This is a very nerdy movie if you are a horror buff okay. and specifically a Malay horror buff. <laughs> Kind of, are, a, a smaller niche. Yeah. The horror itself is already a small niche. Yeah, you know? it is. Uh, so uh, in terms of Malay horror, one of the best I've ever seen. Oh, nice. Uh, it's also I mentioned it's Wait, Malay or Indonesian. It's Indonesian. Okay. Well, I'm just you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all one people. Okay. <laughs> Unity. Um, what I wanted to say was that like I I talked a lot about its old schoolness yeah. approach, its traditional approach. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's a lot of modern approaches to it. Oh, nice. They are they are long Scorsese as scenes set to Indonesian pop music like funk music uh-huh. that. Uh-huh. Oh, feel action oriented and feel more at home in a Tarantino film okay. than in a horror film and there is like kind of this modern stylistic flourishes that, that I mean obviously you won't see in a 80s yeah, film yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is, makes it kind of cool to me 
uh, highly recommend it. You should watch it. It's uh, you can watch it. I think in cafe cinemas now. Okay. Yeah. Ah, most probably we catch it. Definitely. Uh, I also want to recommend uh, <laughs> Scooby Doo and Batman: Brave and the Bold. <laughs> uh, this is an an animated children's WB and uh, WB production. Okay. Uh, most of the time WB they have kind of settled into a more adult oriented content yeah. such as The Killing Joke or uh, Gotten by Gaslight and stuff yeah. like that but their kid stuff is actually really on point oh, okay. uh, Batman The Brave and the Bold and Scooby Doo you would think that it's a weird mix but if you've seen Batman Brave and the Bold it's right at home with um, Scooby Doo Procedural Detective kind of thing? Uh, the campiness the, ah, the self-referential okay. the self-awareness okay. uh, the puns oh okay yeah um, it's it's quite fantastic. This movie is actually really funny. What? Like there are a lot of jokes for adults. Much the same way if you watch um, Paddington, Paddington Two or um, <coughs> the Lego Batman movie. There's stuff for adults and for kids. Okay. Uh, so basically, this is Batman recruiting the Mystery Inc. gang into the Mystery and List of Gotham, which is Gotham's premier detective agency made up of Batman, Detective Chimp, Martian Manhunter, and wow. and other illustrious DC detectives. Okay. Uh, Aquaman is long for the ride because he feels left out. Oh. Aquaman is portrayed like a surf bro, but not like, not like Jason Momoa Aquaman, <laughs> like a really like dumb surf bro. Oh no! Oh, yeah, man. but it's, it 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 makes for some it's of the, it's make, yeah it makes for some of the more hilarious moments oh, okay. in this particular thing, and also it's weird because like some of his dumb moments actually provide the key uh, to some of the mysteries you know, okay, by okay. accident. Um, I really, I really like how the focus on this particular one is on how smart Daphne is. Mm. Like uh, Batman has one case That has never been solved There, there is this like, Long running joke In the mystery endless of Gotham Where everybody Just meet up once a week And they pick out A case file Yeah. And then everybody Has like huge case files Of unsolved cases like, Batman only has one Ranging from his One year one story That like, he's never been able to solve yeah. But Daphne solves it Oh yeah. Damn Yeah it's, uh, it's cute It's funny uh, Well worth your time it's, only, it's a better 80 minutes Of your time Than Godzilla is I feel Okay, I'll yeah. definitely catch it then. Yeah. Uh, last, yeah. Last but not least, I would like to recommend the Nancy Boys. Ah. Uh, which is a BBC adaptation, BBC radio adaptation. adaptation yeah. This is Neil famous novel. Isn't Grey Worm in this? Grey Worm, yeah. Right, he's uh, Fat Nancy, right? Yeah. Sorry, Fat Charlie. Fat Charlie. Fat yeah. Nancy. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know, the Nancy Boys is a spin-off of American Gods. Yep. It's a fantasy novel by Neil Gaiman. It's an incarnation. In which an incarnation of a West African trickster by the name of Anansi, Anansi yeah. dies and he leaves uh, two sons who in turn discover each other. Mm-hmm. So this BBC radio play is wonderfully atmospheric. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's very, very well done. You don't I even, heard a bit of it. You don't I even would... really have to pay too much attention yeah. to it but you get the feeling and the emotion okay. and the story. Just you, it's, it's something that you can do while doing work, while driving, while right. taking a train on the way to school or whatever. You know. uh-huh. it's, uh, it's fantastic. Lah. Uh, in particular, I would like to point out that Lenny Henry is a great voice actor. He plays both Anansi and uh, Anansi and Mr. Nancy, obviously. Okay. Uh, and he kind of carries this uh, this radio adaptation. Okay. Um, I do, did not grow up with radio plays. Like it's it's like, not... A it's man, not our genre. It's not, uh, not, not our time period. Not our bread and butter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, no, I mean, no. I, I obviously heard the Austin Wells, you know, War of the Worlds, one yeah, of yeah. the famous ones, but, you know. Stuff like this is not my cup of tea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but BBC Radio has actually been doing a bunch of this over every Christmas. Yes, yeah. and a lot of it with Gaiman. Um, the last one was Stardust. Yes, and oh. that was excellent. Never as well. Yeah. yeah. I, I, the Never one was really good. Yes, excellent. Yeah. It had stars that the cast. Yeah. It had like Tyrion, uh, Tyrion Lannister. 
Um, I know I'm just. I, I know I'm just. Are you just like randomly naming Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones people? <laughs> okay. We talked about Game of Thrones last episode, man. <laughs> yeah, but uh, anyways, this is a fun listen. It's still on the BBC website for Ooh, international okay. viewers. Um, sorry, listeners. listeners. Like you guys. Yeah, uh, yeah, international listener. Yeah, you're listening too. <laughs> hey, until we do video, you'll only be listening to us. Yeah. Because we have faces for radio. Yeah. Uh, hey. Hey. Okay, I speak for myself. Yes, but um, it is running out soon. I think there's only a week left to oh, listen. Oh, no. okay. Uh, but um, if you are on the internet and you know how to procure contents... If you're resourceful. That, yeah, I'm not saying that... We're not, it, we're not suggesting We're anything. not condoning it, but it's out there to be had if you want it. Yeah. Not on the BBC, uh, via other... Up but to you, you to decide. But you still have time now. Yeah. You so still have time now. Like, like, highly recommended, go, go listen to it. Yeah. And everything else that the BBC radio has been doing. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and we're down to like our last few topics. What's uh, our last few topics? Before we end uh, yeah. with our last two topics, let's talk about the 25th anniversary of Star Trek. Discovery. Oh, yes! Star Trek D Space Nine. I almost said Discovery. I know. I hate oh, Discovery. I was so happy. Uh, <laughs> we, will, we will. 25th anniversary. Okay. We will have a little bit about that later. So, like, let's talk. What weird time warp did I go, sir? 25th anniversary of Discovery. Discovery. <laughs> and people are actually, like, thinking of it as, like, a, re- a revered series. Okay, never mind. Fuck so, it. this is Star Trek. Uh, Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine. It's 25th anniversary. Myself and Hardy, especially, is a huge fan of Deep this Space Nine. This is where we don't. Uh, disagree. We yes. agree totally on this space nine. We agree on TNG, this space nine. Yeah. Just uh, not on discovery. Just not on discovery. Yeah. Why do you think that this space nine, this space nine, made such an impression? And why do you think its legacy has lasted twenty five years? Because first of all, it it expands on the Star Trek universe, mm-hmm. right? It goes into areas such as religion mm-hmm. a lot more deeply, mm-hmm. um, and the the fact that it's on a, this. Di- very diverse space station mm-hmm. and you have interactions between the alien characters like open discrimination sometimes sure like it feels uh, it was very it was very raw and um, it wasn't as uh, idealistic yeah. as uh, TNG or, or um, the original series you know mm-hmm. the whole Starfleet man, um, um, uh, what do you call it the, the whole Starfleet um, directives. directives and all that right this space nine was just you're in a space station you're managing the space station, you're managing all these different cultures, mm-hmm. right? A very Tower of Babel kind of situation mm-hmm. happening. You have new aliens coming in, mm-hmm. you know, f- um, um, imposing their culture sometimes. Yes. That kind of thing. And all these interactions uh, speak, uh, I mean, speak more realistically about um, culture in general in, in, in the world. Mm-hmm. Where a less idealistic version, more of a real politic kind of version. What I would say to yeah. that is that Star Trek Deep Space Nine exists in the same world. It is, uh, there is a utopia there. Yes, there is. There is an idealism and inherent yeah. optimism Correct. there. Correct. Uh, what Deep Space Nine does that TNG does not is deal with the real world complexities or something like that. Yes. Um, a utopia for a one culture is not a utopia for another culture. Exactly. And that leads to conflict. Yeah. And TNG does address that sometimes, but on a more episodic nature yeah. and doesn't really delve into uh, how complex it can be. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and and that's really what I love about it. Yeah. And this space nine, you know, had this whole yeah, the whole overarching theme was yeah. you know how to live with one another, how to use love. Uh, to I mean, T- T- TNG was a lot like that as well, yeah. but it was more optimistic. But yeah. this was more a, re- a more a realistic religious, version of love in terms of uh, politics, in terms yeah. of religion, 
because we face similar complexities yeah. in the real world where our culture has one idea of utopia and what it means to be open right. and progressive when another culture doesn't. But it doesn't mean one culture is better than the other exactly. culture. You have to learn how to compromise yeah. and understand each other. And I think having a character like Cisco, mm-hmm. Captain Cisco as your centerpiece, right? Yeah. Uh, helps bring all this uh, together. He was exp- he was on the journey with us. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, we were on the journey with him. Yeah. Right. As he was getting comfortable as his station as the commander. Yeah. Right of the of the station of, of uh, D Space Nine. Uh, his interactions with, with the aliens and all that were very different yeah. from like what Picard would do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I don't compare him to Kirk because Kirk is a moron sometimes. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, both the G.G. Abrams Kirk and the original yeah, Kirk. Yeah, right? We can do a Captain comparison another <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah. But, but be- because Picard was the most recent when compared to Cisco, yes. he yeah. came during that period of time. Yes. So when, when Cisco came aboard, and his mannerisms and how he interacted with people. More natural. Was more natural, yeah. Was Picard was upright. Yeah. Um, very. Um, I mean, it was it was Patrick Stewart being a thespian. Uh, yeah. But it, it, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's mostly what it was. Yeah, but when you had Cisco, you had a guy who like punched Q in the face. Yeah, a guy, who, a guy who actually leaned back when he was sitting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, cr- you know, little things like that, right? Like, he slouches. Yeah, he slouches. Oh my god, he slouches. <laughs> what kind of stuffy captain yeah. are you? You slouch. So if you think that discovery was was uh, changing the norms of Star Trek. No, Deep Space Nine was the original. Yeah, but Deep Space Nine didn't change the norms. No, I know. It, it, it introduced a more realistic perception of certain things that was not really explored in TNG. La. Yeah, yeah. It's, and I also dislike when people call it the darker Star Trek because it isn't. There's it's a, not the darker Star Trek. There's a great deal of heart and humour yes, and love correct. in it as mm. well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's even an entire episode where they put a bomb in a triple. Yes. Which is... Yes. Fucking triple, you know. It's, yeah. it's, it's a triple suicide bomber. Yeah, it is. <laughs> How dark can it be? Um, these days, I will always like, have a um, place in my heart because it introduced me to Brian Fuller. Uh, ah. It was Brian Fuller's ever, first ever writing job. Okay. And without these days, we would never get Pushing Daisies. Yeah, yeah Or American Gods or Hannibal yeah. or Wonderfalls or things like that. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, Brian Fuller was supposed to run the uh, Discovery and I can't help but think that it might be a bit different. Yeah, oh. I think we have been. Uh, we'll yeah. talk about Discovery in the next show la, when they, they wrap the season. Correct, yeah. Actually, uh, it just came out. The last episode. Is that the last episode? Yeah, the last episode. Just yeah, I, watched, I just watched it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, I think it's the last Oh, episode. there's the last episode. Oh, well, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it next we'll, week. Next, next, next month. Next month, yeah. We'll, we'll devote an entire segment to Star Trek Discovery. Yes. Why it's good, why it's, it's bad, bad yeah. why I hate it, why you love it. Yeah. Uh, and how it challenges um, established institutions within the Star Trek law. Mm. Yep. Yes. So look forward to that. La. It'll be a very... Um, one of the nadir discussions we will have. Yeah. Right? And also, it will be quite a heated one, I think. I think, yeah. yeah. It will be... Uh, if you've ever seen the Last Jedi comment section... It will be, be pretty be like that. for that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, we agree on the Last Jedi. We do agree yeah. on the Last Jedi. <laughs> it's just Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. Where we yeah. Don't. Uh, the Last Jedi has its detractors. La. Yeah. Yeah, but we are... The three of us are not three of them. Yeah. yeah. We have our issues. Yes, we but do. But we love the movie. I don't think... <laughs> But, okay, Love is a bit far. Okay, we like the movie. We like the movie. But I also think that the movie is... It's far from perfect. It's just okay, and I can't fathom why it's inspired so much devotion and anger. Yeah, Yeah, at the same time. yeah. I'm so tired of talking about Last Jedi. Yeah, I know. I'm so tired (sighs) of it. And then, then, like, I I get dragged back into it regardless. (laughs) By by expressing my frustration about talking about it. And then we talk about it some more. (sighs) Star Wars is a way of doing this to pop culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the second last segment will be the pull list, which is something every month. 
so every month, myself, Hadi or Aisa will be intro introducing or recommending three titles that we've been reading, mm -hmm. either current or recent, uh, comic books, <coughs> books, manga, yep. uh, basically just reading material for you to brush up on. Yeah. Uh, this particular month, I'll be talking about uh, three titles. One what is Tom King's Run on Batman. Oh, which, excellent. Which... Um, uh, I know if you if you follow me on social media, I've kind of been like on my knees blowing this this run yes, like yeah. a lot. Yeah, a lot. Like yeah. every week I'll have like three or four. Oh my god! So, let me so let me let me suck Tom King's dick. <laughs> He's so good. But really, um, Tom King is the exact opposite of um, Scott Snyder, who he took over from. Okay. Yeah. Scott Scott Snyder. Yes, yes. Scott yeah. Snyder was like Jonathan Hitman, and he was very good with big broad ideas, yeah. uh, gigantic conflicts yeah. and world building. Yeah. What Tom King excels in is in del delving into the psyches of yeah. superheroes and their personal relationships, yeah. interpersonal yeah. relationships. Uh, Batman and Catwoman was one of those things that made, made me go, huh? When I first heard about it. Yeah. But the more you explore and the more Tom King delves into their relationship, the more you get it. Yeah. yeah. And how that played out as well, right? Mm. With the double date. And yeah. then with what happens with uh, yeah. Wonder Woman. Exactly, yeah. with Wonder Woman, or even... Um, the one where they went to fight in that yeah. dimension. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where yeah. they lived together for how many? Hundreds of years? Relativity, guys. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. not hundreds of years. But for them. For them, yeah. yeah. Correct. And what's interesting about Tom King is um, other stories that he's done, like, which are con comparatively small scale and smaller stakes. Yeah. But they feel important too. Mm. Mm. One of the stories that he won an Eisner Award for was basically about how Batman got his dog. <laughs> and it's one of the sweetest stories I've ever read. It's, oh. it's heartwarming. Um, his, but at the same time, he can do big conflicts as well, like oh. the War of Jokes and Riddles. Yeah. But within the War of Jokes and Riddles, also there was a small story about Kite Man that yep. was heartbreaking. Oh yeah, I remember that. Absolutely heartbreaking. And um, Tom King has been really uh, killing it over the past Kite Man five so years. Yeah. From yeah, yeah, like much. Mr. Miracle, his yeah. vision, his vision uh, run on Marvel. Oh, vision run. Yeah. Oh, oh shit, that was great. That was Tom King as well. Yeah. Oh, that was Tom King. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was really good. It was if you, if you have Tom, if, yeah, basically Tom King and also, has been killing it. Yeah, the Vision run is great, mm. but this current Batman run has been phenomenal. Okay. So he has, I mean, obviously when he took over from Scott Snyder, he had huge shoes to fill because uh -huh. Scott, Scott Snyder was considered a modern master of Batman. Like, yeah, uh, big reputation. He's done a lot with its mythology. Uh, he's still doing a lot of its mythology with Dark Knight's Metal right now, mm. which yeah. is also equally good. But Tom King is more Batman. Like, it really delves into what Batman is. The Batman psyche. The Batman psyche. And weirdly enough, the only thing I can compare it to is the Lego Batman movie, which... Which also delves into is the, the Batman only, psyche. It's the only other thing that has done a deep dive into Batman psyche, yeah. weirdly enough. Weirdly enough. Uh, yeah, uh, Tom King can't come more highly recommended. His Batman run. You know what? Fuck it. Just read everything Tom King has ever written. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah he has so a series good. coming out called Century that deals with uh, PTSD in superheroes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like a support group, you know. Yeah. If you've seen The Punisher, the early episodes. Where they have that little... Um, for war veterans, war veteran thing. but for superheroes, yeah, ideal. And well, you know, it makes sense. Like, why, why don't superheroes have PTSD? They should, they right? Should. They should. Yeah. They see the worst of shit. They deal with this on a regular basis. Yeah, and also it's like ten times worse than whatever you know, yeah. a normal human can deal with. Yeah, exactly. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I also like to recommend Ryan Noff's run on Squirrel Girl, the unbeatable Squirrel Girl, <laughs> which is uh, meta. It's self-aware. It's funny. It often critiques what's going on in the Marvel universe itself yeah. by kind of poking fun or satirizing <laughs> major crossover events. Yeah. Like there's this one time that Squirrel Girl had to be rebooted into a new number one because of Secret Wars. Yeah. And then the headline in the fucking front page, the cover page was only our second number one in a year. <laughs> uh, they, they always do very, very cool stories. Like there's this uh, story told in circle. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like uh, a drawing of Loki, basically yeah. that you can read backwards and forwards, and it tells oh, different stories yeah. with yeah. the same text. Yeah. That's fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. There's this story about how um, Squirrel tries to do an anthology comic book. Yeah. To raise funds for a library that has been demolished. So she gets other artists from other. From the Marvel universe, from the Marvel, uh, from the Marvel uh, his her friends from the Marvel universe. Yeah. So she had Galactus draw a story. Yeah. She had Loki draw a story, which was that there was Loki story. Yeah. Well written, Loki. Well written. Uh, very Loki. Yeah, very Loki. <laughs> Uh, they had Wolverine tell a story yeah. about how Wolverine had to overcome his prejudices against the Sentinel. Yeah, uh, that. Which, was ex- which was very, very good. good. Yeah, very yeah, good. you know, um, uh, turning of the table, so to speak. Yeah. Sentinel wanted to do a good thing. Wolverine doesn't want to believe him, but then like, you know, bro, that discrimination. <laughs> yeah. Just because, <laughs> just because I'm a Sentinel doesn't mean I'm bad. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, good stuff. And mm. last thing I recommend what is, is a book called Abbott. Abbott. Yeah, by uh, Saladin Ahmed. Oh. Uh, this is. Uh, okay, let me explain the premise to you. Go ahead. So, it's about a hard-boiled black reporter, mm-hmm. and it's set in 1970s Detroit. Oh, wow. okay. This, this, this sounds re- interesting. This yeah. reporter, she covers um, the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. uh, the struggle for the struggle of the Black Panthers, mm. gang violence, uh, a racist police department, uh, police brutality, and stuff like that. That's what she does by day, and the first issue mostly covers on that. Okay. But by night, right, she fights demons and supernatural forces. Constantine, like... Yes, she is uh, Constantine meets Dana Scully meets Louis Lane. Wow. Oh, shit. Yeah. And, and <laughs> okay. she deals with both sides equally and neither side feels more important than the other. Like whenever she goes off to fight demons and vampires and stuff yeah. or the occult, then she's always leaving behind some important issue that she has to deal with in the real world to deal with that. Mm. And neither side is more important than the other because there will be bloodshed. And it, it really delves into, ni- uh, well, not just 1970s, African American experience, like the African American experience in general, because nothing much has changed, to be honest. Yeah, no, yeah, no. I, just with the added aspect of this being a supernatural noir as well. Man, I want to read it. Too. Because like uh, her husband was murdered by a cultist, and yeah. and she's trying to figure out how that happened. That sounds interesting, right? That is, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna check that. Uh, Salin Ahmed, that. Uh, great novelist, also a poet. I think this is his uh, first comic book, mm. so very good, very prosy. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, she talks. Is like Iron Tide? Uh, what's his name? Not Taika. You, you go say Taika with TV. No, Tanahisi Coates. Tanahisi Coates. When he first wrote Black Panther, it was also very prosy. Yes. Yeah. It is still is quite it? prosy. It's, it's better. It's better. He's getting used to the medium. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's my pull list for January. Uh, sorry, not January. For February. February. Uh, yeah. Uh, and before we end off the show, we would like to talk a bit about Ursula K. Le Guin. Tribute. A uh, little bit of a remembrance, she is a sci-fi and high fantasy legend. Legends. A, a giant of literature as uh, Neil Gaiman called her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the more, like Philip Kip Dick, one of the more influential figures yeah. in all of sci-fi. Mm. Uh, she recently passed away, sadly. Yeah, um, have you read any of her books? And Earthsea, you... man. Uh, the yeah. Earthsea trilogy is one That's of the... That's the only thing that I've read of hers, but it really struck quite, uh, quite a chord with me. Yeah. Uh, why, why was that? Because they're all not white. Yes, her her ability to offer representation, right? Especially in books that were written in the sixties, seventies, and eighties. I mean, I only discovered it uh, like in two thousand, uh, Yeah, correct. Uh, but like, like if you uh, as we keep saying on our earlier hard hits episode, you know, stay woke. It's stay easy woke. to say in twenty eighteen. Yeah. But this was not a time. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, she she's fantastic. She she's influenced a lot of people. But what I most love about her is uh, her unabashed like. Defense of sci-fi, I think. 
Correct. For me lah. Sci-fi and, and, and fantasy. She's, yeah. she's always called out the literally, uh, literally, <laughs> the literary establishment yeah. Yeah. For, for disregarding great works of genre fiction. Yeah. Uh, when she at the National Book Awards. Oh my gosh, she's our patron saint. Yeah, she's our patron saint. Yeah. At the National Book Awards in 2014, her now legendary speech, she basically thanked all the other genre fiction authors who have never been able to win this award. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at their award, you know, with calling them out. Yeah. Uh, she is fervently against realism because she feels that in this day and age, or in any day and age, realism might be the least effective way to deal mm. with real world issues. Yeah. It's uh, it. She's been proven right quite a few times, but. Yes. Yeah. As, I mean, come on, we live in the most ridiculous age exactly. right now. What kind of realism is that? Yeah. Our realism is no longer real. Yeah. She's even called out her good friend, Margaret Atwood, yes. for not uh, for not labelling her work as sci-fi. Yeah. Because she, Margaret Atwood always fears that uh, if she labelled her books as sci-fi or fantasy, taken. they won't be taken yeah. seriously by the literary elites. Yeah. Uh, and that's quite that sad. That is actually a legit fear by Margaret Atwood. For, I mean, you think about when she wrote her books and all that. Yeah. 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 I mean, speaking of Atwood, right, and and her relationship with the Queen, uh, I was just reading her essay in in tribute Mm -hmm. when the Queen passed away. Yeah. And she basically said, like, it's so sad because now more than ever we need the Queen. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because of the way that it's and and the one thing and I think one of the more memorable uh, concepts that that the Queen uh, that I read at the Queen wrote is the idea of the Omelas. Mm-hmm. Which is like this perfect city mm-hmm. uh, that exists only because there is a single child who has to be mistreated. Yeah. Okay. Based upon that. And I mean, like, powerful ideas like that, you know, are nowhere more important in this day and age mm-hmm. with all the things that we're seeing. I mean, we, we've talked so many, I mean, we brought up this whole like Trumpian thing, mm-hmm. like, what, eight times now in this yeah. entire podcast? Yeah. Yeah, and there's, there's, no, there's no more time. So we. The literary world has lost a giant, yeah. right? And I think the world, in uh, as a whole, has, has lost something great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, like her works of literature, you know, um, she's done the Earth Sea trilogy yep. is considered a masterpiece, and I think I would recommend the Left Hand of Darkness, yes, yeah, which is also considered a masterpiece. Um, most of her work kind of deals with uh, politics. The natural environment, gender, religion, sexuality, ethnography in mm. alternate universes. Yeah. That's what sci-fi does. That's what Philip Kim Dick did. Uh, what Ursula brought to the table was a female perspective. Yes. Which Philip Kim Dick didn't have. Yep. Yeah. Uh, she was against the realist, but that's only because she was the realist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, love Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, if you're not familiar with her work, go and, get, go and read some of it. Yeah. 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 Left uh, of Darkness is a great place to start. Yeah, for sure. If you want something like Earth Sea. Oh, see, is that light, man? It is quite light. But it's, a, it's, it's easy. It's easy. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. okay. I get that. I get that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes, yes. That's it right. doesn't hurt the brain too much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, her short stories are great too. Yeah. Easy to get into. Exactly. Yeah. Or oh, even her essays you know, in sci fi. Or oh, if you want to just watch the Studio Ghibli adaptation of Elsie. Pen. Okay. The Tales I mean, of Elsie. La. Oh, that was very good. Yeah. It's yeah. not her stories, though. I yeah. think it's like. They created their own stories. Mm. But it was, yeah. Basically expanding her universe. Expanding her universe. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. It's, it's enemy and it's Ursula, so I guess it's uh, right up our wheelhouse. Yeah, we should yeah, definitely yeah. catch it. Yeah. Uh, we'll be back next month in March 1st. First of every month, look out for us then. Yep. Yep. Uh, we'll be talking about stuff like Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Shape of Water. Shape of Water. Shape of water. Um, Annihilation, which is Alec Garland's new movie. Mm. Um, Isa will be talking about Dirk Gently's uh, Holistic Detective Agency. We'll yeah. see how that goes. Uh, we'll be talking about um, Black Lightning. 
Oh, they are not done with it. They won't be done with it. Yeah. No. Yeah, okay. Although I do have to say Black Lightning is excellent. Yeah, please catch that. Uh, oh, yeah. It's, it's been good. It's been great so far. We will go more in depth, but it cannot come more highly recommended. Yeah, mm, mm. yeah it's is, a good time it, to jump on. It is blacker than Luke Cage and it's on the CW. And that takes a lot. Yeah. yeah. Which is weird. Agreed. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, other things. There's a horror movie on a review as well called The Ritual mm-hmm. on the, on Netflix. It's about Norse legends, mm. uh, the rising hikers. Hadi mm. uh, will talk about Star Trek Discovery, and then Yay. I'll probably fight him. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I will talk about the season, the end of season one of the Tick. Okay. Mm. Yeah, and uh, we'll probably I'll have, join you in that. We'll, we'll probably have more as yeah. we go on. Yeah. Uh, the Carbon is also a big Netflix oh, yes, show that's coming yes. up. Yeah. Uh, so we'll we'll catch you next week, guys. See ya. Wait, no, next month. We'll catch you next month. Next yeah. month. Next month. Yeah. <laughs>